whether you are worshiping at the South Campus or the North Campus or downtown, I just want you to know that uh, I have you in my heart and in my mind and invite you now to pray with me. I believe God wants to speak to all of us across these hours and across these miles. So, Father, I pray that Bethlehem in these three locations at all these hours would be addressed by the Holy Spirit through this word with a kind of power that builds into several thousand folks a fresh, new, deep, unshakable habit of depending hourly upon the promises of God to be set free from sin and to perform acts of love and righteousness that will make a massive difference in their families, in their homes, in their schools, in their communities, and at their workplaces for the glory of Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen. I preached on this text from 2 Thessalonians 1, the last Sunday of the year, 1985. And little did I know that when I was preaching on it in those days, I was uncovering in verses 11 and 12 what would become one of our most precious 30-year theological trademarks, which I call living by faith in future grace. So what I want to do is unpack it again, not in the same way I did there, but spend the first little while walking through two verses, verses 11 and 12, to see eight crucial, indispensable aspects of the Christian life, and then step back from that summary of the eight aspects of the text and describe what I mean in more general terms about living by faith in future grace and then close with about six concrete applications to your everyday life. So let's read these two verses again. Verse 11, to this end, and and what he means by that in the preceding verses is Uh, so that you will be able to marvel at the Lord when He comes. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good or good resolve and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, eight crucial things in those two verses. Number one, there is a calling of God on and in every believer, a calling. Verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, that is, the glorious destiny that he has for you, a, a destiny to be a part of his kingdom and to be a part of and shaped by, glorified by his glory. 
Easiest place to see that's what it means is 1 Thessalonians 2.12, which goes like this. We charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. So the calling of every Christian is that we will be destined, we are destined and will be there in God's kingdom and in his glory perfectly someday. So your calling is to be in the kingdom of God. Your calling is to share the glory of God as, as will be increasingly clear as we get to that part of these two verses. So that's number one, the calling of God. Number two, there is a being made worthy of the calling. Verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So that's what God is doing if you're a Christian. He's making you worthy of his calling. Being made worthy of something doesn't mean being made deserving of it. It means being made suitable for it or being made fitting or appropriate for it. If you know that the Queen of England has decided to come and stay in one of the bedrooms of your house, your thought will be, first, probably, I don't deserve it, and the room certainly doesn't deserve it, which would be true. But what you mean by, I must make the room worthy of the king, is, of the queen, is that she's got the worth and the room needs some work. I want to make the room suitable. I want to make the room fitting. She's already decided to come. It's not about deserving her coming. The Lord has put his favor on his people and said, you're going to be in my kingdom. You're going to be my children. You're going to be there glorifying me. And then he goes about the business of suiting us out, fitting us for that destiny called being made worthy of of our calling. That's number two. Number three, there is a fulfillment, therefore, in the exercise of that being made worthy of the calling, there's the fulfillment of our good resolves. Verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every good resolve or every resolve for good. So the Christian life is a resolving life. It's a planning life. It's a purposing life. It's an intending life. God has given every one of you wills, and he intends for you to use your will to make plans and purposes and designs and intentions and resolves to do something right and beautiful and good every hour of your day. That's why we have brains and wills, volition. And the question is, how do those resolves become real, turn into deeds, get fulfilled? And that's number four. By the power of God, verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill, so God is fulfilling every resolve for good, every work of faith by his power. 
So our resolves become works by his power. And he intends to get the glory for the fulfillment of our resolves, and that's why he makes himself the giver of the power. The giver gets the glory. If you did your resolves in your own strength, you would get the glory, and you should. And if you depend on him to fulfill your resolves with his power, he gets the glory, and he should. That's the way he set it up. And so, how do our resolves become acts? How does a resolve to do a right thing and not do a wrong thing become effective? God's power, that's how. So, the Christian life is a a life of supernatural power coming in, moving out, and giving us the ability to fulfill our resolves. Number five, how do we tap into this power? How do we avail ourselves of the power? How do we depend upon the power? By faith. Verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every good resolve, every resolve for good, and every work of faith. When God fulfills by his power a good resolve, it becomes a work of faith. That's the way I'm taking the connection between fulfilling a resolve for good and a work of faith. Power of God enabling these to happen. When the power of God meets you in your good resolve, it meets you by making that resolve become a work called now a work of faith, which shows how you tapped into that. Got it? It's a work of faith. You could call it a work of power. It's true. He's just bringing you into the picture now. He's already said God's power fulfills your resolves and turns them into fulfillment. That is works, deeds, acts. And then he adds, and those acts are acts of faith, which tells me exactly what my role is in availing myself of divine power to fulfill the resolves I have in life. Namely, I must trust Him. I must trust His promise to give me power tonight to fulfill a resolve I have when I go home. That's what I have to do, is believe Him, trust Him. That's the plug into the power. It's the the outlet and the electricity is his power, and the plug is my faith. I trust you. Click, power. That's what faith does. It, It gets in, and power flows through it. And God has designed it that way because when you're a little child leaning on God for power to fulfill your resolves, he's going to get the glory, which is where we're going in just, just a moment. In fact, not a moment, a second. Verse number six. In this text, the name of Jesus is going to be glorified. Now we're at verse 12, when God fulfills our resolves through our faith and turns them into works of faith, Jesus gets glory. So, verse 12, so that the name 
of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. So when God's power comes through your plug of faith and turns your resolves to do the right and to avoid the wrong into an act of faith, Jesus gets glory, which must mean, since he hasn't been mentioned yet in these two verses, that Paul is assuming that the power that he calls God's power is power purchased and provided by Jesus, which is exactly what I argued for last week. When Christ dies, what He purchases for us, purchases for us, is that God would now no longer be against us. His power is no longer devoted to our destruction, no longer devoted to our condemnation. All His power now, because of the cross and our connection with Jesus, is pouring on us for our good, not our destruction. So anybody who knows the gospel, and I I hope that last Sunday's message hasn't ceased to be real for you. Anybody who knows the gospel would know that it's so fitting that Paul would say here that Jesus' name would be glorified. When God, by his power, comes into the life of imperfect people like me who don't deserve any help at all from him, and he takes my little puny half-baked vein resolves to do right, and he makes them happen to some measure of good, Jesus gets glory. That's right. God gets glory too, but Jesus is named as the one who gets the glory. He purchased that awesome sanctifying event that enables us to fulfill our resolves. Number seven, and we are glorified in Him. So, He's glorified in this process, and now it says we are too. So let's read that again. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So as he purchases and provides the power by covering all of our sin and providing all of our right standing with God, we are being conformed into Christ-likeness because our resolves for good are being fulfilled by faith in that, and the effect is that we too are becoming glorious with His glory. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And oh, for the day when that will be complete in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, when we shall be changed, saved to sin no more. Hasten that day. Lastly, number eight, all of this is according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. End of verse 12 so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all, all seven of those steps, it is all of grace. Grace of our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus. The power that comes to us moment by moment to fulfill our resolves for good is the power of grace. The extension of grace. So those are the eight crucial, indispensable, wonderful aspects, elements in verses 11 and 12. Let me try to sum them up. How do they work? Put them together in the order that they they work instead of just the order that they came. Paul starts, I mean, ends with the beginning, right? At the bottom of the Christian life is, is grace, and everything moves up from that foundation. We, if there were anything we could do down here beneath this to get under it and make it happen, it wouldn't be grace. That's the meaning of grace. So grace is free, and it comes to us in, in our total undeserving, and it starts to do good things for us. And so it's all of grace. So, so grace is at the bottom of the Christian life. And now, up from that grace, God's power flows. And that power flows through your faith. If we were doing other texts, I could show you that the power, in fact, awakens that faith and then moves through it, awakens those resolves, and then fulfills them. But all it says here now, all we're going to talk about is when you have a resolve to do right and do good, to honor God, to love people, to kill sin, that resolve, if it gets fulfilled, gets fulfilled by the power of God. And the way you tap into that power is by faith. And when you do, then Jesus is made to look glorious in your life and you participate in the glorification of Jesus by becoming increasingly beautiful yourself. Somewhat in this life, unspeakably in the life to come. So the effect of this power as we trust him for it is to fulfill resolves of good and turn them into acts called acts of of faith. So the life of the Christian is a life of faith in ever-arriving measures of divine power to do what needs to be done. A life of faith in ever-arriving power, which now at the end of verse 12 is called grace, from which I get the sentence We live by faith in future grace. This is an amazing panorama of the Christian life, these two verses, an amazing description of of the, the whole of the Christian life from grace at the bottom to glory at the top, and then in between divine power appropriated by faith, fulfilling good resolves, glorifying Jesus, making us new to his name. Just 
an amazing two verses. I love these two verses. It's just so full. Your life is here. If you're a Christian, this is your life. And if you wonder what is it like to be a Christian, you should just live a few weeks in these two verses until you wear them like a garment. And and every part of these verses makes experiential sense to you because this is you. This is what the Christian life is. And every piece of it, you should ask, do I know that? Do I think that? Do I feel that? Do I experience that? Do I walk that? Am I moving in this sphere? Or am I just kind of out there flopping around with no sense about what the Christian life is at all? Oh, Bethlehem, live, verses 11 and 12 of 2 Thessalonians 1. Now, let's step back and see if we can say something that'll, my prayer is, cause living by faith in future grace to stick. Stick here, stick here, stick here, so that tonight, tomorrow, and 10 years from now, this is a structure in your head of how to live your days. That's what I'm after. Grace I'm drawing now a bigger picture, mainly from these two verses, but I'll draw in some other passages. Grace in the New Testament, as we've just seen, is not only God's disposition to do good to us when we don't deserve it, often defined as unmerited favor, totally right definition, but it's more. The grace of God is not just God's disposition to do good to the undeserving. It is that. But now we've seen it's power. Grace is power. Grace moves in and enables me to fulfill a resolve. Now, I want to see this confirmed. Here's a verse. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15 goes like this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. Now, you could, you could paraphrase that from 1 Thessalonians by saying, I turned many resolves into deeds. Couldn't you? I mean, that'd be the same thing. I worked. So, by the grace of God, this grace came to me, and it was not in vain, but I worked. Many of my resolves, many of Paul's resolves to suffer for Christ and plant the church and get in prison and endure beatings, they came to reality by grace, he's saying. Grace did that. I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So I just, I would base my whole sermon and life on that verse insofar as Life is a dependence on the power of grace to be what we ought to be and do what we ought to do. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked. But when I worked, it wasn't I. It was grace with me. That's pretty clear, I think. Grace is the key. The power of grace moving into our lives, turning our resolves into hard work that's free and joyful and satisfying and the last thing from legalistic. 
Grace doesn't produce legalism. It's grace. And it produces hard work. Christians aren't lazy because grace is powerful. Here's another thing we need to know about grace. Not only is it a power, but it is past and future. Grace uh, has been in this room since you got here. Otherwise, you would be in hell. Sustaining your faith, sustaining your breath. I'm talking unbelievers and believers when I say that. Uh, No bomb blew up. No poisonous gas has come. Uh, Nobody has yet, to my knowledge, had a heart attack. And on and on and on the blessings would go. We're on an ocean of grace in this room for the last hour or so. And your rooms. I call that past grace. That already happened. And we have a little time to go yet in the service. And and my guess is that most of us will live to the end. Maybe not. We'll probably live to the end of the service and and maybe some more good will be done. So grace is coming to us in the next five minutes. It's just coming. Five, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, all night long, all morning long. Grace is coming. So I have in my head a category called, um, I have a picture, a river. So there's this river of promises and, and the water that's flowing to me with such power is the grace of God. It's coming from the future, flowing in my life. It, it falls over the waterfall of the present into a reservoir called past grace, and therefore past grace reservoir is getting bigger every day. It's getting bigger every minute, which means you've got more to thank God for every minute of your life than you did before. Because the right response of the heart towards past grace is thankfulness, and the right response towards future grace is faith. This is really fundamental and so simple. I mean, this is not complicated. As grace is coming to you by promises from the future, what should you do with that? Trust them. Trust it. It's going to come. He's going to help you. Believe me. He's saying, believe me. Trust me. Every hour of your life, he's saying, trust me. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I'll hold you up. I've got an avalanche of promises for you. Trust me. And as those promises turn resolves into work and flow into the history of your life and the history of the church, you look back with an ever-increasing sense of, you are amazing. I am so thankful for 33 years of faithfulness at this church. Amazing if you knew how many sins are in my life. (laughs) I mean, how many people I can offend in that moment. (laughs) Just how did I survive 33 years? Grace. Total grace. So the, the reservoir just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and this is inexhaustible. This fountain, this spring where the river of grace flows to us from the future, it will never ever run dry because Jesus bought infinite grace for us. Now, clarify. 
it is not wrong to say we trust in past grace. That's not a meaningless sentence, but I'll tell you what I mean by that sentence. And when I say past grace, I mean like Jesus died for me. (laughs) There's never been a greater demonstration of free grace towards John Piper than when the Son of God died on my behalf. And then about 50 years ago, no, 60 years ago now, I was born again. That's another stunning grace that's way back there 60 years and then way back there 2,000 years. How should I, I said gratitude is the main response to that. But if I say, I trust that Jesus died for me, I trust, what, what, what do I mean by that? Use the word, if you use faith language backward. Everybody knows what faith language is, future, right? I promise you I'll be there. I trust you. And you build your whole day around it. But when you look back and you say, I trust, you know, you would never say to somebody, I trust that you would be on time yesterday. What? That's, that's a nonsense sentence. But you can say, I trust that Jesus, when he died, died for me. But what do I mean when I say that? I mean exactly what Kenny started with in this service, and maybe it's been expressed in the other services. I mean that when he died for me, he secured for me infallibly that there will be a river of grace flowing to me forever. I cannot fail. Power is going to keep arriving in my life forever. His death guarantees my everlasting life. And my moment-by-moment perseverance to get there was also bought back there. So when I say I trust him back there doing that, I mean all of that was perfectly sufficient to secure this, where I live my life moment-by-moment. That's what I mean. It's no... no, abstract, historical thing just to affirm that Jesus did something. If he didn't do what I'm trusting him to have done, I got nothing in the future but trouble on my way eternally. But if he did what he promised he did, said he did, namely die in my place, then maybe somebody in the next 10 minutes will be saved in this service. And other wonderful things might happen and all of it for our good. One more clarification on what we mean by faith in future grace. So it's power, it's past and and future, faith toward the future, gratitude toward the past, but also understanding a kind of faith in the past because of what it purchased for the future. And now one more clarification. When we say we trust God or believe His promise, that he will work for us in the next five minutes or five decades. We mean we are satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus through those promises. 
Now, I would take a long time perhaps to provide adequate foundation, but I'm just clarifying what I mean by living by faith in future grace. When Jesus, when Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, he meant, I embrace Christ as a treasure that is so satisfying by comparison, everything else is loss. That's what faith is when it receives Jesus as a treasure. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, so there's the faith language, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he means soul thirst, heart thirst. Which means that believing is a eating or a drinking of the beauties and glories and truth and wisdom and love and goodness and justice of Christ so that the soul is satisfied. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. So believing means coming to him and drinking so that our soul thirst is satisfied. So faith in future grace means trust in all that God promises to be for us in Jesus Christ, in any one of his promises out there, all that he is for us. Here's what Paul said expressing this. This is Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Is, would you accept that content Content is another word for satisfied. I'm, I'm using them that way. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And those all things include hungering and being brought low. And so what's the secret he's learned? The secret he's learned is to trust the ever-arriving strengthening power of Jesus. Because he says, I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me. This, we're back in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. By the power of God, I enable your resolves to become acts through faith. So Paul is saying the secret of contentment, the secret of satisfaction is trusting the promises. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to strengthen you. You're mine. I love you. We believe that moment by moment as we walk through life and form our resolves and then trust that promise to come in and empower us to do them. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, let me go back to the verses and sum, up, up, sum them up and close with some illustrations. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, God fulfills our good resolves. How? By his power. And how do we tap in, plug in to that power? 
they become works of faith. So the faith is the means by which we receive, embrace, enjoy, are satisfied with God's coming to help us and be for us what we, what we need. And this will enable us to defeat sin and do righteousness. If we trust Him this way, So the challenge of the Christian life, and I, at 66, I am deeply desirous to learn how to do this. I mean, Paul did say, I have learned the secret, as though it took some time. How many times do I come to the end of a day and I shake my head and say, it's been eight hours since I thought about trusting a promise. I haven't even thought about them. But you know what else I've had in those eight hours? Anxiety, murmuring. Where do they come from? Not trusting promises. This, is, this takes some of us a lifetime to learn. Oh, you young people, get this now. That's why I prayed at the beginning, oh, God, build habits. Build habits into our lives. Habits of trusting promises. Habits of hourly going to the Lord and saying, I need you. I need you. I need you. And then, and then don't just go away saying, yeah, I need him and feeling as depressed as when you came. But rather, take a promise. Take a promise. I believe it. And don't let it go until it has an effect on you. And then turn your resolve by that power into a deed. Closing illustrations. If you set your heart, for example, to give, thinking money here now, could be anything else. If you set your heart to give sacrificially and generously, I'm not even thinking necessarily the church, just whoever needs, whatever need you think, whether the church has needs and the poor have needs and ministries have needs and wherever, you, you just want to be, you just set your heart. You're going to make a resolve to give have a, a sacrificially generous life. The power of God to fulfill that resolve will come to you as you trust in the future grace of God in the promise, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the promise, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And the promise, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You believe those three promises, you're going to be a generous, sacrificial person. Power will come into your life, believing those promises. Number two, if you set your heart to return good for evil at work, in the family, wherever, to return good for evil, the power of God to fulfill that resolve will come to you as you trust in the future grace that comes through the promise, blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice in that day and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. You believe that? then you will bless those who curse you. Yes, you will. It will be so freeing. There's a blessing upon my returning good for evil. There's a reward in heaven 10,000 times better than getting the last word in this conversation. But do we believe it? 
This is a faith issue. Number three, if you set your heart to renounce pornography, I'm going to renounce it. I'm not clicking. The power of God to fulfill this resolve and turn it into an, an act of obedience glorifies God will come to you through your trusting in the future grace, in the promise, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. You believe that? Is he satisfying to you in that promise? Is faith for you to assent to a promise intellectually, or is faith also for you to embrace the Christ of the promise as a satisfaction of your aching soul? Or the promise, it is better that you tear out one of your eyes than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Oh yes, it is better. It is wonderfully better. It is all satisfyingly better to tear your eye out. It is so much better. Believe that? It's a belief issue. Number four, if you set your heart to speak for Christ when the opportunity comes, you can bear public witness somewhere at Thanksgiving or at work, going to bear public witness when opportunity comes, the power of God will come to you to fulfill that resolve when you believe in future grace that is flowing to you through the promise. Don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that very hour. Do you believe it? Number five. If you set your heart to risk your life by ministering to the needy in some dangerous place around the world, set your heart to be that kind of servant of God and go to a, a dangerous place to serve people without the gospel who have a need. If you set your heart to spend your life in a, in a difficult place, a dangerous place, the power of God will flow to you to turn that resolve into an act of faith if you trust the future grace that is flowing to you through this promise to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or don't fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. You believe it. You care for me that closely. Every little hair, you count them. That's how intimately concerned you are for my welfare as I walk into this very dangerous place. Yes, that's how intimately I care for you. Sparrows and hares, that's how I attend to my children. And finally, number six, if you set your heart to invite someone to Thanksgiving dinner who cannot pay you back, the power of God will flow into that resolve and turn it into an action if you trust in the future grace that is flowing to you through the promise of Luke 14, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you believe it? It's a wonderful thing to live by faith in future grace. It's radical, it's freeing, 
It's satisfying to live by faith in future grace. May God increase our daily faith in the inexhaustible, blood-bought, Christ-exalting future grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love the gospel and I love the fruit of the gospel, namely, ever-arriving future grace. Future grace to finish the sentence that I'm praying right now. Future grace to go home with guests tonight and be a good host. Future grace to get up and do these services in the morning. Future grace for this week's work and a thousand other resolves that you will put into our hearts. It is a thrilling thing. Would you grant everyone in the hearing of my voice to form the habit of hour-by-hour reliance upon ever-arriving grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.